Hello, and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, author and playwright Mark Anthony Rossi. This show explores all forms of creativity for those searching for meaning and a place in the world. To err is human, but so is to love. Now, without further ado, here's your host. All right, folks, this is Mark Anthony Rossi. We're back here with Strength to be Human. Uh, John Patrick Robbins, for the first time in the history of this show, had real technical difficulties that he's not going to be able to overcome tonight. So for the first time, I'm actually going to continue the show without him, but we're going to have a, a guest, the editor of The Dope Fiend, uh, Scott Simmons. Scott, thank you very much for filling in this evening. Hey, Mark, good to be here. I really, I really so, appreciate uh, it, especially on the short notice. Yeah, yeah, uh, it's all right. It's stuff like this will happen occasionally, but um, so, Mark, wh- why don't you say like what we really wanted to talk about with this one? Well, we we wanted to go with this show in the direction of what's going on with with Corona and how it affects people and maybe in their art, and we could even talk about some of the things that have happened over the centuries where people have done things or changed society in such a way artistically because of a, of a horrible event like the Black Plague or the Spanish flu and all that sort of thing. So we'll talk a little bit about that. We'll try to be a little bit light as much as we possibly can. I don't want to be too grim, you know, but of course we're not going to ignore the facts either. It's, it's serious. People need to distance themselves. Uh, lots of folks can't really leave their, um, their communities. Uh, I'm, I'm in a community that uh, it has a police curfew after 8 p.m. I can't leave the house. You know, all the parks, all the schools, the museums, the zoos, everything is closed. So, you know, we're not trying to live in denial, and I'm certainly not trying to live in, you know, in a fantasy world. But at the same point, you know, if, if you dwell too much on all of that and, and not realize that, you know, as long as you're healthy, you still got electricity, you got food, and you're alive, well, we could talk about things and how we can all figure out how to mentally and physically survive until this is, you know, until this is over with. It's not going to last forever. It's not. Um, as far as like uh, the mental aspect of it goes, like one thing I always like to do, like you know how a lot of people, like you're kind of stuck in now those like uh, all this quarantine stuff. Like one thing I, I really enjoy to do, it's uh, actually I kind of like to, I do like to distance myself from things, like by uh, getting myself involved, like trying to draw or uh, write. Think a little stories, even if they don't really turn out that great. Exactly, art can I mean, be good for that, like almost like a form of a therapy. Or in many cases, art right now it's more like a recreational means. No different than watching the Netflix, but there's only so much you can watch of that. Where you just want to read a book or or write something down or, or do some painting or something. I, I was reading that in in China right now they're having the kids because you know they close the schools a lot of, a lot of areas over there too. They were having them like paint some of their famous paintings and just sort of making their own version of Mona Lisa or their own version of, of Raphael or something. So that's great uh, for people to uh, sort of stretch themselves out and, and feel like they're on the outdoors doing something without having to be too close to anybody, of course. But uh, at least they're still feeling that they have a piece of life and they're not just confined in some dingy apartment. Like what have you all been like? What what all have you been up to? Like since you've been 
having to be stuck at home so much. Well, I still got to plan to plan and produce the shows, and of course, I'm, you know, uh, getting ready for the April edition of, of Aerial Chart. And then, you know, I have two children who can't go to school, can't leave the house, can't go to the store, can't go to the park, the zoo, the movies, anywhere. You know, and you know they they get some educational uh, tutoring. They got to do some internet stuff, and then I got to play a lot with, more with them than I normally do when I get home because they, you know they're bored out of their mind at one point. So you know, playing lawn darts and and, and some golf and and, and uh, um, baseball and and some soccer and basketball and anything else we could think of in the house. I redid I redid the patio in the yard so they could have more room to do more stuff on the premises because you just can't really go anywhere. I don't even like going to stores unless I don't have a choice because it means you got to intermingle people and sanitize yourself 50 different times and take 100 showers and so I don't even let them leave the house anyway. It's just it's a scary prospect. But at the same point, you know, um, they're kids and, and they're, they're taking it pretty good. I know with, uh, with my college lately, like uh, it's had to go online and that has like not been fun because I've been having to take a math class. So I'm trying to figure out how to, like, basically teach myself how to, like, solve all these little matrix problems, and uh, that has not been easy. Like, are your kids having to do all the online stuff now, school and everything? Yeah, they do They do some teleconferencing, and then they do some phone uh, chats with their teachers about certain things. They have various online assignments they have to do as well, uh, things in what's called Google Classroom, where you can finish the assignment, hit a button, and it shoots it to your teacher. And then they can view it later on, and you can get grades. So school continues with them. And in many ways, they actually uh, seem to be doing more work when they're out of school than when they were in school. It feels like it's more work to me. But, like, I, I, like are they taking well to it? Because, like, for me, it's been really, really a challenge. Well, they, they like being on the Internet anyway just because they're kids of that generation. Where myself, I remind everybody, Listen, too much of anything is not good, okay? Five gummy bears is wonderful. Fifty-five gummy bears is going to screw up your stomach. It's no different with the Internet or, or Netflix or the streaming services. When you're watching them and you're dealing with them an hour a day every, here and there, and it's not a big deal. But if you have to deal with them too much, I mean, how much? How many shows can you watch where you go like, oh, my God, I can't take this anymore? It's the same thing with the Internet. You're like, your eyes are getting like, you, you, you want to like fall out of your head. So, uh, unfortunately, too much of that sort of stuff seems to lessen the value of it, and it's kind of good to go out there and kick a soccer ball. Yeah, it, I know what you mean there, especially whenever, like, you get shows or movies and you feel like you're watching the same thing over and over again because they'll, like, reuse the same plot, and then I can, like, read the entire thing for even watch the movie. <laughs> like with uh, a lot of really modern horror movies, I've seen that. Like, oh, I know exactly when they're going to pop up. I'm so scared. It's it's a problem with Hollywood in general. And not only just Hollywood, though. Plenty of other places throughout the world. It's what they call the variation on the theme. So, you know, you come up with the one Die Hard movie. And the next thing you know, you got Steven Seagal on the boat, Die Hard on the boat. Then there's Die Hard on the train. So pretty much it's the same model just being used in a different way over and over again. You know, it's a, it's with the vampires. You know, we went from Dracula, then we have a black vampire, then we have a gay vampire. I'm waiting for the transsexual vampire that shoots uh, blood out of its eyes at you. I mean, it, it's it's the same damn thing, but just a bit of a variation. But it can get, you know, it can get old fast. <laughs> 
Well, I do admit sparkly vampires are just so appealing, Mark. <laughs> like, um, you ever, you know what does drive me nuts? It's all those, what do you call them? They're trying to, they're trying to remake, all those remakes. That's it. Like, oh, let's have Jaws 27. Yeah, it's a, it's a real problem because it says two things. First thing it says, wow, we're running out of original stuff and we just don't want to take a chance on something that might actually be really creative. Let's just rob something that was done before and maybe if we flash it up with some special effects and, you know, a couple more curse words, it'll do well. But if you take a poll, and I don't mean the poll from a critics, I mean just a poll of people who watch these remakes, you're going to find like 9 out of 10 people wasn't impressed with the with the remake of Ghostbusters or, or a lot of these other movies. They they sort of ruined a, a, a good thing. And all the times they don't make. I mean, you ever see the the remake of The Fog? It's absolutely horrible. And it's almost the same movie, just updated. And it's not even as scary. It's almost laughable. So it's like, please don't do this sort of crap. But I know they do it because it's cheap for them to get the rights, and it's easy for them to put it together. Sometimes an actor. Will we'll go on something that's a remake because they feel oh the public's more familiar with it so maybe they'll go watch it versus something brand new they don't know any damn thing about. So uh, to me, it, it's a, it's a commercial effort and it often flops. Yeah, actually, I do. Uh, I actually have a question for you, Mark. It's more just toward your background. Like, I know you're you're also like I know you're playwright. Like. When it comes to, like, writing scripts for, like, plays versus, like, you know, like, videos, like, are there any, like, real key differences between between the two or, like, or what? Yeah, there's, there's a, a, a gigantic difference. The, the main difference is with a, with a play, remember, you're being confined to this small stage. So just as much as the actors can only do so much on that stage physically – you only can do so much verbally through that script, so you always have to keep it moving forward because it's not about just them talking to each other. Anybody could write that crap then. Hey, man, what do you think about the weather world? Oh, yeah, she was pretty hot, but her her predictions are always wrong, blah, blah, blah. I mean, come on. So you, you have to make it interesting, and you have to include a lot of a lot of conflict to let them move around and, and then mentally move people around in the audience. And there's nothing to save anybody on that stage or, or even the playwright, if they fail in that, because you can't throw in some whiz bank, uh, you know, uh, uh, distraction or, or special effect, or somebody coming in blowing up a car or a building. There isn't anything. You're on a damn stage. It's extremely limited. So because of that, you know, you're, you're really forced to make sure that whatever you're saying is interesting and people are following along, and you're going in, into the depth of it all. Because if you do, if you don't do that, it, it becomes a big flop. You don't have the same kind of room to make mistakes or, or be more superficial. You just simply can't. Um, about one thing when it came to like, uh, I did do a little bit of theater. Uh, I didn't. I just uh, I did play a few things, not a ton. One thing that always would mess me up is getting like stage directions right. Because I, I switched up in my head. Yeah, you have to you have to put those in there to to let the uh, to let the actor know what what they they expect him to do, maybe with their body or, or their one of their limbs or even their facial, you know. So it, it's definitely a, a important. It, it's not something that's an implied, really. You know, more times than not, uh, you have to be able to give them that direction too. It, it's 
believe me, writing a play can be monotonous at times because sometimes you're just trying to get through it and you're like, oh yeah, I got to say this, I got to have, he's got to turn his head, he's got to do this, he got to do that, blah blah blah. Yeah, it can be it can be a, a, a pain in the neck, but of of course uh, it's also matter how short it is, whether it's a ten minute play or an hour play, um, it could be extremely uh, you know, revelatory and, and even exciting. Especially for the playwright, uh, when when you do you know hit that hit that uh, the hammer on, on the head, because for a small amount of time you can really get something going for the audience and, and, and for the actors, and you really you really controlling the whole bunch of things that is going on. It's it's more three dimensional than it is just writing a, a short story on paper. Is that like what was that what draws you into it the most? Is just putting your work like your work into a different dimension, really? Well, that that that's what it is for all the genres, whether it's the uh, the poem or the fiction uh, piece or the nonfiction piece or, or the play, is that you find the ideas that you have that you want to express and see which one of those vehicles it fits in the best. You know, like you can't put Charles Barkley in, in a Yugo; he won't be able to fit his big butt in there. Okay, he's got to go in a big vehicle. It's the same thing with ideas. Some ideas are better expressed as a poem. They work perfectly. It carries what you need to get carried. Where you have others, it's like I got to do a short story on this. So, and then others that are big and more involved, and you're like, no, I got to do a play on this. So it's really about just trying to fit your idea into one of those genres where you know that genre is going to successfully carry it forward. That that, that does make a lot of sense. Um, I'm not. I have no innate talent for drawing. That is one thing that interests me about it. It's that I can try to capture different things in it. Like, um, that, that really just quite appealing to me. Also, that's one, another thing I like about acting, too. I can try to play whatever role, like, they want me to do, and I get to get into it, really. Like, uh, since you've been stuck at home, like, or, I don't know, have you been, like, having to work full-time, or, like, have you been having to, like, stay at home off and on? No, um, I, I still work a uh, full time. I, I, I work at the bank, and but the first week of all this, they they uh, they made us go home like a half a day for a couple of days, and still paid us all the way all the way through the day just so they could figure out what their plan was. But you know, right now it's I, I work full time, but it's, it's just stressful because there's almost no contact with customers. Then now they come in, you got to communicate everybody through a slot in the door or, or through some uh, plexiglass window and. It's all very, uh, you know, almost, uh, you know, humorless and, and humanless to get something done. And people don't always take to it very well, especially the elderly. They, they look like you're being rude to them or being nasty. You know, you ask a 95-year-old lady to bend down so she could drop her money in a slot. I mean, she's not exactly happy. And God forbid something happens to her. But this is what they're making people do because they're just, you know, frightened to death of everything that's going on. So that's the sort of thing I have to deal with. So it makes the job a, a lot more difficult because you uh, you have to ask people to do things they don't want to do. And, you know, without trying to uh, be completely defensive of those policies, I mean, I am a guy that don't want to get this damn thing from somebody and then bring it home to my children. So, you know, as much as I understand how th this can be a real distress for the customers, I, I don't want to get any of that crap either. So, you know, I'm of two minds of it all. I try to be as courteous as possible but i'm like i'm sorry dude i can't have you in here can't have you breathe over here and don't touch me either okay that's that's what you got to do and not to mention no matter what contact i have with that person 
I mean, I'm sanitizing and scrubbing everything down like every five minutes. I cannot believe how many times I have to wash up and do this and do that. It's just an unbelievable amount of time. And then when I come home of a whole day of that, I got to rush into the shower, take all my clothes off, wash them, and, and scrub myself in the shower before I even introduce myself to my kids or my family. Because, again, I, I got to be as safe as I possibly can. And I'm out there. So it's I can't say that it's a lot of fun. It's not. <laughs> I, I've been having to stay at home pretty much because uh, I have a 90-year-old great-grandma that lives with us. And I'd really be bad for her immune system, so I'd stay at home more. I will say the, all the washing and all the hand washing and stuff doesn't bother me a ton because I was like already a germaphobe before this point. <laughs> so just like routine for me. I, I understand. With the elderly and with the young, you have to definitely be triple careful. So definitely been uh, not to mention you know instructing the kids about everything they have to do. You know, so it's uh, um. It's definitely a, a task and a, and, a, and a chore, and it just seems like a, a whole lot more work, you know. But I, I'm not trying to over-complain because, you know, we're not sick at least, and there's other people who are dealing with this in a, in a hospital bed someplace, and that's not a not a fun predicament to be in. And in some cases, through no fault of their own, and, and through other cases, just because they didn't want to ignore, they just want to ignore the warnings out there until they got themselves ill, unfortunately. So we hopefully that... Um, all that we're doing in society right now will, will help with this. I did want to talk about on the show a little bit how other places and societies, how things like this has impacted them. One of the things we had learned, and we, we read it for some of the historian texts that wrote about the Black, the black Death throughout Europe, which killed nearly a million people. So we know some of the, some of the grim details of that and some of the numbers. But what we did learn also is through art how the, the Black Death, one of the first major pandemics in the world, how it affected art. Uh, art started becoming more religious. And, and without to make fun of that or anything, uh, I guess it's not hard to be religious when everybody's dying around you. You, you want to think about God a lot and what's going to happen in the afterlife. So art wound up becoming much more religious than it was before. Uh, people were, were, were drawing angels and painting Jesus and God and castles. and all, They were putting all kinds of stuff in their house. You know, uh, some people have many altars they paint in their house and put candles over there. So it changed the, for like hundreds of years. It changed the art and the way people approach things. They wasn't so, they wasn't so cavalier even about the the concept of death. Even they even they even drew that in a more formal way, and, and even wrote about it the same way. So it, it really did change uh, society and how it looked about things. You remember they didn't have radio and text and. You know, internet and, and, and television, but you know they had you know they had writing, they had sculpture, they had painting, you know, and all those things really changed, and we we can tell the difference. Uh, a similar thing happened uh, during the Spanish flu in the early 1900s, which literally killed millions throughout the world, almost a million just in America a, a, alone. And, and remember, we didn't even have antibiotics to any of this stuff, including the Spanish flu. And then antibiotics didn't come back to after after World War Two, so. We didn't have those things at disposable to anybody. So literally something 30, some 30 or 40 years before antibiotics was wiping people out. And and it also changed art that way too because at that point, uh, the radio was invented. So people can listen to shows and, and, and sort of like get their entertainment and get their focus off of things. Sometimes they can get some health information about what they should do and how they should conduct themselves, which they say probably saved a lot of lives 
you know, because again, you know, people didn't really realize that, you know, being sanitary and cleaning up and wearing a mask or not, you know, coughing in front of a hundred people would actually help. So those things uh, changed as well. And then, of course, uh, we uh, we learned um, through that last one we had here, the uh, the, the H1N1 uh, flu, which literally killed over 100,000 people in, in America, and that was just 10 years ago. You know, people were were putting out stories on the on the radio and the internet and podcasts and and of course television about it and uh, people writing about um, you know the flu and the vaccination. You know, uh, if you recall, that was just the time when the, uh, the anti-vaccination movement came about, where somehow we're all being poisoned by them. But then, of course, you know, they realized later on, you know, those that had that vaccination. Uh, even if it wasn't that one, just a regular flu vaccination had a greater, you know, chance of protection. Just like right now, if you have the regular flu vaccination and you have the pneumonia vaccination, those two things, if you come across with corona, will actually help you. They're not going to cure it. They're not going to stop it, but they're going to slow it, 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 the gravity of it and of its impact on you because corona is in the flu family. So any, any flu thing you have in your system is going to help. I always found the whole, like, I don't mean to like get this to be like too divisive or anything, but like I don't know. I always found the anti-vaccination thing just silly because like it just seems like you have all these like I like if I can recall correctly, like that came like the vaccination came about became because of polio, didn't it? Yeah, like, that, that's definitely one of the, one of the things that came out with, and, and of course uh, uh, rabies as well. People forget rabies and polio used to be so widespread and serious. You know, you get bit by a rabid dog, you were dead. I didn't know the rabies thing was that big. Oh actually. yeah, it was it was huge up until the seventies. I mean, it was, and I'm old enough to remember that. And they scare you to death. And that's just when they came about with, oh okay, if you get rabies now, we're ready to rock and roll with that. You're gonna have to lay on a gurney, and we're gonna give you 24 needles in your stomach, and that's how we'll stop it. So I mean, that's how they finally came out with something to, to, to stop it. But there was a point before that people get rabies, and that was it for them. They were gonna die. So, like, I don't know, like, have you seen any, like, you're, you're quite a bit older than I am, like, how many, uh, like, have you seen any health scare kind of like this one, or this one been unique? Well, this one's unique only in the, in the, in the sense that it's not as deadly as of any of the other flus before it. It's just it has a horrible element of being so transmissible, and, and before that wasn't the case. It's actually hard to get the regular flu, even if you're in a room with somebody who has the flu. But this particular corona thing can last on the surface of a place for 17 days, they found. It can stay in the air for hours upon hours. So the minute you're, room in the, you're moving the room over to where it was in, in the air, it's going right into your lungs. And this particular flu, unlike the other flus, which are much more slow acting, this flu right here goes right for your lungs and tries to create the pneumonia. And this is what kills people on the coronavirus. They don't die from coronavirus. They die from pneumonia. But they die from pneumonia that is really difficult to treat, almost antibiotic resistance. So that's what makes this, this disease both uh, super scary, but then also in a way it makes people almost like uh, don't take it so seriously. Oh, and most people will get through it all. Yeah, you're right. They Most people will. But the people with underlying issues like diabetes, uh, having uh, lung issues themselves, heavy smokers, very old people, very young people, 
or people, guess what? You could be like my age right now and, and you don't even know that you have an underlying issue. It's never surfaced. And now this thing comes over and now you're in the bed dying two days later. You know, we've had people 35 years old die from this thing in three days. They didn't know they had a heart defect all that time until this thing happened. So this is what makes that this particular disease so scary because there's some unknown elements to it. It seems to exasperate things that you didn't know was there. But more importantly than that, it doesn't seem to go away so easily. And that's why it's so important to sanitize and clean off surfaces and not, you know, be in some place where people are coughing and, you know, hacking up a, a lung and everything because you don't know how much that's going to that's gonna linger on. And it's really the, the scarier element of this. And now the Chinese, they just reported that 10% of all the people that have been not cured but have gone through their 14-day cycle of this, it turns out that they become immune to it, but now they can become carriers. So that means that people who no longer have coronavirus can give you the coronavirus because now they become... Yeah, now they become carriers. So they were wondering why this thing was spreading so much in China. So they were like, well, this dude just did his 14 days. He has no more symptoms. We're cool. We let him go. He goes back in the village and disinfects 100 people. But he did nothing happens to him. He's all good now. This is something they haven't seen before because all the other diseases and all the other flu in this family of flus, once you've gone through it, you're no longer a carrier. It's, it's out of your system and you're done. But in this particular one, there's a portion of people that can still carry it. They still need to explain and, and study why that's the case. What's up with those 10% of those people that can still carry it? Is there something special in their bodies? Is there something wrong there? Did it change something? There's a lot of, there's a lot of questions we don't know, and that's what makes this such a, a, a mysterious force out there and, and almost like a bad sci-fi movie from Showtime. Actually... It's kind of this might be this is only tangents only tangentially related, but like to me, it really is kind of strange just how scary something unknown can be. It doesn't matter what it is or what context. It just it seems like not knowing something can be more like more scary than you can really know what's going to happen. It, it is. It's it's throughout history. Um, that's where the concept of prejudice and even bigotry comes from because of the deep fear of something that's unknown and something that's different. I mean, you see the way people are acting over here. I mean, I go to the store, all the meat's gone, all the toilet paper's gone, sanitizer. They have had a sanitizer in this community in over three weeks. Thank God I have a lot in my house because I have kids and I, and I believe in this stuff. But if I didn't, I would never be able to find any. You can't even get it on the Internet. It's ridiculous. And, and half of this, this hoarding from these hoarders is more out of fear than everything else because I don't care how deadly Corona is, it, it won't make any difference if your house has 15 bottles of sanitizer or one bottle. If you're still not conducting yourself in a safe manner, it's not going to help. Well, obviously, toilet paper is the most helpful. That's the weirdest part of it to me. That is not what I would panic buying out of anything. It's just, I don't know, I just, I don't get it. I have a lot at the house, but I could barely find something. It's, there's, again, stores haven't been at it, had it for at least two, at least two, um, two weeks that I'm aware of. They got paper towels, but problem with paper towels is uh, you can't do anything with it because you destroy your, your whole plumbing system with it. So, God forbid, if you have to use it, you'll probably have to just throw it in a plastic bag and, and wrap it up and throw it in the garbage because you don't want to use it in your plumbing system because that's the last thing you want to mess up in your house. Because you don't know if your community is going to run out of water. Is it going to stop? Is electricity going to get shut off? You don't know what's going to go on in the community, how things 
operate over here. You just don't know. So, um, but this is all fear. That's what it is. It's fear. Have you seen like, uh, like it just, I haven't been through it as much when it comes to like disasters or whatever. But like, what's the most common type of thing to actually cause like water issues or whatever? Because like, about, the only thing we get here is, uh, I think we had an occasional chemical plant issue since I'm like by Houston. Well, where 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 I live at, this is a hurricane row, so to speak, here on uh, coastal Georgia. It, uh, oftentimes, it, it, if the the strong winds will hit a community, it can knock out the electricity, and it, you need uh, electricity to run the reservoir water pumps in order for everybody to have clean water and, and of course, uh, you know, sustainable water. And some communities don't often have those backup generators, or when they do. Those only last so long because they're running on fuel. They're not running on electricity because there isn't any electricity. So if you don't have a huge supply of water at your house, you're not going to have anything to, to do. You, you know, you're, you're, just, you're going to be done for. So um, that's that's one of the re- that can happen because electricity is necessary for water. That's just the way it is. We're not using pumps from a well over here. It's being delivered by modern, you know, reservoir, uh, you know, machinery that that needs electricity. Yeah, you know, it's weird. I guess I've just never thought about it a ton. Well, it happened to us already. It happened to us a year and a half ago. Uh, the community got hit with a storm. Uh, we got hit with a um, Category 5 hurricane. So it knocked out uh, uh, most of the Internet, uh, all the electricity, and, and of course, it, uh, those generators for the reservoir for five days. Uh, thankfully, because uh, we keep two-week supply here of everything, uh, I had plenty of water to, uh, you know, to do some cooking and, and drinking and all that kind of stuff like that. But you couldn't fuss the toilet bowl at all, even with the water, because everything had stopped. So, you know, you just it was just horrible because after five days of going in there, trust me, it's not a fun thing to clean up. But that's what happens. If you didn't have any other stuff, you'd be in real trouble because they couldn't deliver anything into you. And whatever they could deliver to you is poisonous because it hasn't been treated. So even when electricity comes back, you still got a day or two for that to go through the system. So, I mean, I, I've been out of uh, um, electricity and water for over a week, at least twice. So that's why we, we keep supplies here on a year-long basis. So, I mean, uh, we have to because this is a real thing that happens. Do you think, um, I, don't, I don't know if this is a bit strange, like, I don't know if this is a bit weird to ask, but, like, they, I saw on some local news thing here that people are like panic buying like ammunition and stuff. Like, do you really foresee this getting that bad? Because I just, I, I just never thought it really would. Well, I don't know if this particular um, thing is going to get to that. Mainly because of, you know, the military and the national guard on, on and on alert, and because the system is still working in terms of the government and trucking. And getting supplies to places, and they're trying to figure out a whole, you know, solution on on the vaccination and everything else. So things are moving in the right direction. We're not like, in, you know, in a complete standstill. But I can tell you from my my last experience on the storm, yeah, I uh, I had a gun, and I had it loaded, and I had to carry it. And the reason why I did it is because they evacuated my community, and they literally told us, well, listen, even the police won't be here. So if you don't decide to leave the community. You have no protection. You have no fire protection. You have no police protection. Now, the last couple of storms, when they did that and people left, 
we had people just come into the house and loot your house with a truck and leave. You come back to your house and there's nothing left in there but like a couch and maybe the dog, which they probably killed. So that's that's a serious thing because you don't want to leave someplace. And in the last storm was, was particularly acute for us here because what had happened was is that for the first time ever, people who left the community thinking they'd be safer, they got themselves stuck on the side of the road and they couldn't move because the traffic was so bad. And then the hurricane's hitting them over there. You're better off to stay in the house where you had more protection. And, of course, you could protect your house. So, yeah, that was the first time I had to literally be in the house, be in the house, because I didn't want to leave. I, I thought it was safer uh, safer in the house than that. But I had to pull the gun out and I had to make sure that um, the floodlights were on and, you know, the, the proximity alarm would go on if anyone goes near the house. And just to make sure, because people loot the houses and, God forbid, you know, you're in the house and they try to loot it. Who knows what they'll do, what they'll do to your family? Uh, we didn't have any problem with that. Did nothing happen to us. Uh, but again, people's houses did get get it looted. I mean, it's not a joke. So it's it's just amazing. You don't know where these folks come from, and you know, one day things go bad, and next thing you know, people are preying on you. So it it's, sounds like a bad movie, but unfortunately, it happens. Oh, really? I wouldn't know how to process that. That just seems. I don't know. It just seems. I, I couldn't imagine at the moment. I, okay, whenever you've had to like. Uh, now, this is, like, on a more wider note. Whenever you had to, like, hunker down for other stuff, like, did you, like, did, are there any particular ways you just had fun, like, with your family or whatever, like, just pass the time? Oh, yeah, um, well, yeah. We, 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 you know, got some board games, play some cards, you know, when when you have electricity, of course, you can, you know, you could do some internet games and stuff like that with the kids. I got two small kids, so... You know, um, different than most people my age who kids are already in college. My kids are still in you know elementary school, so you have to you have to be um, more more inviting in in the atmosphere you have. You know, I, I mentioned the beginning of this show with John before you know we we lost him, uh, you know, due to technical difficulties. That one of the first things I I had, uh, I had learned early on, and even on this particular situation, is that. As much as I wanted to arm my children with the facts and what they needed to do to protect themselves, and you know, so they know a lot about disaster preparedness and first aid, and you know, all that, they have a great knowledge of that. This corona thing is a lot different, and you know, you give them that knowledge, but you don't want to sit there and have them listen to the news all day, which is frightening, and you don't want them, uh, you know, thinking that you know the kids are their friends are dying because they haven't heard from them for a while, and. You know, one of them thinking that, you know, somehow you know, if they forget to wash their hand for a minute, they're going to get something and die. So you have to you have to be careful not to go overboard because, you know, your job is not to frighten people, but rather to just inform them and, and try to keep them as safe and, and as comfortable as possible, you know, until all of this until all of this passes. And if you can't do that, you know, you, you, you're making a house uh, full of. Uh, People who are already a bit worried, you're making it worse. And remember, you still have to deal with the cabin fever because, you know, other than going on my patio in our backyard, there's no other way we can go. There's no other places we can go. So you 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 are limited. So you you gotta you gotta keep people more on their toes and and less you know on some kind of scare tactic. And maybe that's easier for me because I'm a parent. I don't have to, you know, I don't have to do some commercial airlines over here. I don't have to do some. You know, get some ratings by scaring the hell out of everybody. I mean, half times I don't even want to listen to the news because it's. I'm not living in denial. It's just that you're not telling me anything new other than you know the next ten thousand people that died in China. I, I think I got the you know the gist on that. Okay. 
Well, what annoys about like okay, one thing annoys me like the news is how it's it's kind of again how you said like how repetitive it really is because like I've seen them just on different stories. They will mention it like about ten times, and they will give me no more details than the time before. It drives me nuts. Like, oh wow, I didn't know that happened. Unfortunately, especially here in America, we have a we have a media that that's bent on trying to figure out what they can do to get people excited and and and, and upset or moving in one direction or another rather than simply just reporting things and letting people make up their own minds. I, I find it in many ways, you know, to be not only uh, depressing and distressful, but, but also just simply manipulative. Because if you can't use your own mind to make up the facts that are supposed to be given to you, and, and instead they're manipulating them or, or shaving them in such a way to get you to do something, then to me that's no longer news. It becomes propaganda. It becomes it becomes dangerous, and it becomes undemocratic. And that's those are the things we need to worry about. This is supposed to be the the news media. It's supposed to be the force that keeps the government honest. But uh, we've gotten so much uh, so far in our society right now that oftentimes the government has to keep the media honest, and that's that's a scary prospect. I will say, like, uh, as far as the whole, as far as that stuff goes, like, about any, when it comes to, like, any outside information, or even, like, things that I just believe myself, I guess I've always learned to, like, really look into multiple sources so I can just try to see, like, how valid my perspective is, or how valid to my, like, whoever's trying to tell me something, what they're saying actually is. Because, like, I don't know, it just seems like, you know how, like, uh, whenever you get, like, online stuff, you have so much information. I've had to really, like, learn how to weed down through things and just see what actually makes sense to me. I can see how it would work. And, and, that, and, that's, and that's great because that's what a, a free-thinking person does and should do. But in, in, in a smaller way, the media is supposed to be able to wade through things, too, and kind of kind of give us a, the gist of what's going on, and then we can make our decisions otherwise. They just, they just do such a poor job of doing it. Sometimes it's about ratings. Sometimes it's just about their built-in bias, that they just can't seem to give credit to anything that's against whatever they particularly believe in. And, and sometimes it's just because they're so addictive to being negative. Do you know how many people would watch a news show if they had a segment every damn night that says, let me tell you some of the cool things that are happening with Corona. We got some kids doing some arts and crafts in the park, but they got them spread out six feet apart, and the guy's doing a loudspeaker, and he's teaching them about some art and stuff. And we got uh, other people with, with some gloves on. They're trying to deliver some food to some shut-in senior citizens and then singing them a song before they go off to their dinner. I mean, they could be reporting all kinds of cool things that are really happening, but they don't do that. That could be done. That would lift people's spirits up, and quite frankly, they would go to see uh, that news show more than the other guy that's talking about 50 million people died in, you know, Bangladesh or something. You know, it does actually, that, I mean, that, that is true. Like, that kind of thing could be good. But whenever it comes to people, I actually, I don't know what kind of bias we would have toward, like, positive or negative, like, stimulus. Like, do you think people are more reactive to things that are negative or positive in general? People are more reactive to things that are negative because that's, a, that's, that's the human condition. But it doesn't mean because it is the human condition that we can't change it. 
That's one of the great things about the human creature versus everybody else on the planet is, is that we can still change our destiny. We don't have to get up tomorrow and be a moron. We can actually learn something and go forward and, and be something greater than we were the day before. But we're, we're not going to do that if we don't have at least some kind of modicum of, of leadership towards that way until we take the old reins of our life. So, yeah, I think people would go to, to, to watch a news program that has some, some positive stories in there because they're aiming to get, to get people's spirits lifted and, and to educate them. Yeah, people would go that. No matter how negative people can be, they would still go to see that because they'd be curious. And, and that might help take some of the edge of that. Or that might help bring a little bit of their faith back. That might restore something about something they thought that was lost in humanity. But we're not going to get it from these folks right now because they just want to be 100% negative all the time. Do you try to, like, uh, I don't know, like, whenever it comes to stuff, like, uh, any, anything you're really working on, like, how much do you really try to, like, incorporate, like, uh, hope into things? Like, how much does that really influence you? Well, it, it does um, more in, in my nonfiction uh, articles. I, I write for uh, Indian publication uh, on a weekly basis. So I will often have some kind of... Um, article that incorporates something about hope like uh, i i did an article a couple of weeks ago about you know whatever happened to you know beauty in life and then we talked a little about in the article about you know people think, seeing positive things through their relatives or through the eyes of their children or or people just seeing acts of kindness that they didn't expect or maybe sometimes it even happened to them and that kind of gave them a, a sense that there was still hope out there and then if they felt there was still hope out there well then maybe there was still hope for themselves as well, so I try to do something like that in a nonfiction sense because it has more of an impact. It's a lot harder to write about hope in a poem because, in the end, no matter how well it's written, people can just write it off as you know being a whole bunch of hallmark hardwash, and that's fine. And it's a lot harder, and sometimes in a short story too, because it's like, oh, that was a fantasy. But when you write nonfiction, people will take it more to heart. Do you have, um, I don't know, like, whenever it comes, like, I I don't think I've read as much of, of your nonfiction. Like, what type of format do you typically, go, like, put those into? Like, what's your preference? Do you, do you actually adapt them to plays, or do you, like, most of you, like, on stories? No, it's just it's just an article, just like a, a mini essay. It's simply, like, you know, four or five hundred words come up with a cool title and an interesting topic about something and, you know, go forward. You know, I had, um, I wrote an article about, I think it was, about, it, was it was in February and I, I, I had to ridicule a, a country because they came up with this idiotic law, an actual law that said that, listen, you shouldn't pollute the river because the river is pretty much God. And by polluting the river, you, you're like you're disrespecting God. So if you do this, we're going to punish you severely, like if you're just simply desecrating something holy. Now, I understand the intent behind it, because obviously polluting the river is stupid when, you know, a lot of villages depend on it for fish and travel and all that. Uh, that's all fine. But, you know, whatever happens is simply enforcing the books on the books, the laws that you already have about polluting rivers and the environment and having a... a a small coast guard out there and all that stuff, putting these ridiculous laws into effect where you're going to 
you know, you're going to take some teenager who took a piss in the river and you're going to give him 10 years in jail. You're not doing anything other than making a political statement. You're not doing anything practical to help the river or to help the world or to help society, to help your country. That's idiotic. It's simply anti-hope to do that. How about you have classes on teaching people why they shouldn't pollute the river and why a boat should operate in a certain way and why you shouldn't overfish over here and why you should maybe piss in the sand instead of in the river. There's a hundred different thousand things they could have done differently than put this ridiculous rule into effect that the, the river is a living God. It's just idiotic. And I, I'm not, I'm a religious person and I still think it's idiotic because it doesn't make any sense. You, you go too far on something that, you know, um, you had some good intentions on, and, and now you, you've just made things worse. And, and in many ways, you probably made it counterproductive too because there's going to be a lot of people scratching their head going, what the hell is pissing this river have to do with pollution? I'm not a polluter. I'm just a pisser. So it's just you, 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 you make things worse that way. That is a weird law. I don't know. I, I, I'm always of the thought it's simply better to like separate like religious stuff from government is because whenever you put it in you get the two involved it can just it just makes religion and something that's used for wrong reasons in my opinion and this is true too and, and there's nothing wrong with separating it but you can never make a hundred percent separation because i think every country has a right to say that listen if you if you burn down your neighbor's house you know you should get 10 years in jail but if you burn down a church full of you know 300 people and something maybe we should give you life in jail I mean, it's nothing wrong to, to make that kind of differentiation because not only is it a, a bigoted hate crime, but you're, you're killing more people. You can't fit 300 people in a single-family house, but you could fit them in a church. Well, yeah, it's true. I mean, it it would be really uh, – I think it's, it would just damage the community more because like, that's one thing about buildings like that, like they're, they're standard point of community. So when it, when they when they infuse some religiosity into into the law that way, I don't have any problem with that because it, it makes practical sense. You don't want to make all the laws have anything to do with a religious connection, but you're going to have a couple. I don't I don't think it's really possible to to avoid that, you know. But that of course is is, is something that's that's gone to the extreme. You know, what I mean, where you you suddenly declaring a river a god. It's just it's idiotic. And of, and of course, it's impractical. It, it didn't work. It's still not working. They're going to have to reconsider it now because it's stupid. Whenever it comes like these, uh, like okay, all these articles, it's like what all? What got you really into doing that? Like, because I mostly have had to do stuff like that for uh, different, co like for my English classes, their college, and the the AP class I took back in high school. Well, I think it's about where where you are, especially as a writer, where your 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 deep your deepest interests lie. Uh, so, I mean, you're going to have some writers that they want to talk about, you know, the, how trees are important for the for the atmosphere, and you know how it's nice to hug them and, and talk nice to them, and you know, and don't kill them, and you know, all forest fires and all that stuff. And I'm not making fun of that. If that's your thing, that's what you should be writing about. That's what you can be passionate about, and that's fine. But I, I found that um, since I was young uh, that I steered towards the things in society that I either liked and wanted to encourage or I didn't like and, and, and wanted to, you know, poke fun out of. So uh, oftentimes the, the nonfiction writing 
has a social element in it because that's where I feel uh, my my best voice is at and where my strongest things at. And as becoming a parent, you know, many many years later, you know, I'm happy I did that because uh, again, I, I share those things with my children. You know, I don't have to tell my children that you know the river's a god, so don't pee in it and throw chemicals in it and kill fish. All I have to say is. Hey, you know, people depend on that, you know, people's livelihood, to, to drink, to, to eat the fish, to travel. So you, you want to have respect for that. It makes no sense to, to ruin that because you're going to hurt lots of people. And, you know, when you hurt lots of people uh, through polluting the river, it to me, it's no it's no different than being, you know, almost like a murderer. You're, you're doing something akin to that. And when you say something like that, it's just, it makes more sense than trying to make it into some, you know, some fantasy project that don't reach a lot of people. And, and that's what I like about that kind of writing. So I write a lot about that because those are the subjects that, you know, that are big interest in me. One of the biggest things I've been working on now, and I'm going to be getting this published here soon, uh, not in the Indian publication, but in another publication, is the uh, the whole explosion of sex robots and, and how I, found that, I find that to be dehumanizing and, and dangerous to, to women. And also, you know, instead of it reducing uh, uh, rape and sexual violence in society, uh, apparently, the societies that have the most sex robots, there's actually even more sex violence. So it's it's having the counter effect. So those uh, lies from the manufacturers of these robots, you know, are, are, are proven to be a, a complete untruth. Uh, they're actually harming the world more than they're not, and we should consider more about you know banning those sort of things because they're dangerous to society. I cannot say that's been a topic I've thought about actually, like. I don't know. I've just I've never given it that. De- oh, then again, I'm also like uh, I'm typically less interested in stuff like societal stuff. I guess it's because I would just feel like it's harder for me to change things. I, I guess I tend to have more small a smaller focus on things, but I don't know. It's interesting here though. I do like seeing uh, different sides of things though. Uh, those are the kind of things I like to I like to uh, write about, the, sort of the social things. Sometimes this show, when we're talking about literary topics, sometimes it, it'll spread into a more social realm, and we could talk a, a little bit about that, kind of like what we're doing now. Although I think we're doing a little bit more now than uh, we do on the other shows, but still, you know, it's it's a good form for that. Even though I try to keep it more more literary, but I like the column and I like the nonfiction uh, articles they do because. They tend to be less literary. I only have a few literary topics in them now and then. It's mostly about different things that I see in the world and society. I'm soon going to be putting out an article about, you know, some of the scientific research that's showing that, you know, the legalization of pot, you know, it's turning out to be a a bunch of baloney. It's not that useful medically because they have plenty of artificial drugs that people can take that does the same job. So if that's the case... Why do we need to legalize this? If we're going to do all this legalizing pot things, why don't we just call it what it really is and what it's always been, another moneymaker for a state organization so they can do other things in the state government with it. Just call it that then. If you're going to do this crap, be honest. And it's one of the reasons why I write the most on social topics is because I'm usually finding the things about it that are dishonest and I just I get tired of that. If you're going to stand up for something, just be honest at don't give me all this crap about three old guys with glaucoma and your, your, your uncle uh, was thrown up from, from, uh, from the cancer uh, treatment, so he had to smoke pot in the park. I, I don't want to hear that crap anymore. It's old. It's stupid. It's unscientific. 
you know there's plenty of other things you can do other than grabbing the joint so um that's one of the things we're going to write about as well because that, that's becoming more uh, to me like a bigfoot story out there everybody's seen bigfoot but nobody has any proof it's the same thing with this pot thing just call it what it is you want to use it recreationally and you're going to make a revenue for your state that's all that ever has been it's all it ever is now. It's it's always the reason why this is going to be this way. They just use this medical thing as a cover and an excuse. But it, it's such a weak argument. I mean, I'm against all of it. I think it's stupid. But I'm not going to try to ban it. Go smoke pot. I just say if you're going to do this and you have the balls to do this, then have the balls to be honest then. Don't don't live a lie and give me some crap because I don't want to hear it. And that's, those are the things I like to write about because those are the things that we should talk more about. We can't have a... Uh, I feel a civil society or a democratic society, if all we're doing all day long is denying things and lying to each other, you're not going to have much of a, a, a society that way. Have you ever read, um, I don't know, like, whatever comes to like uh, stuff, have you ever read, uh, like, was it night? Didn't you create some? Didn't you actually? Never mind. Never mind. I'm thinking about it. Didn't you put something in your last book about like uh, 1984? Was 1984? I'm thinking of. I, I wrote a um, I wrote an essay on on the book, and we did a, a show on George Orwell about 1984 and some of his works. I think actually, I always find that one really creepy because like. With the uh, you know computers and stuff like they can you can you can actually be watched without even like knowing it now. I just found that topic like just horrifying in a way. Well, it, it, it's been scary ever since he wrote that. You know, more than you know sixty years ago. But the the biggest problem with it now is when he wrote it. It was under the belief, the author, and in and in his works that. This kind of surveillance and this kind of invasion of, of privacy, in, in, you know, into your into your private affairs, could only be done through a government because it would have the money and the resources to be able to do this. They never imagined him or Alice Huxley that society would change in such a way because of the miniaturization of technology that more times than not, a big brother in your life isn't going to be the government. It's going to be your neighbor trying to snoop into your wife's, uh, you know, when she's, like, taking off her bra, or, or, or maybe they're trying to snoop in into your computer to steal your credit card information. Some dude from a thousand miles away can do that. So oftentimes the big brother and the invasion isn't happening from a corporation or from a government. It's happening from an individual. This is not something that the writers from 50, 60 years ago ever thought would happen because their agenda was... These things would happen to help control your life because the government would be anti-democratic, not realizing that you can have a democratic society and undemocratic things can happen to you because you have an idiot neighbor who has enough technology to do so. So it's changed the head of many of these things now. And you have to oftentimes be more worried about the individual invading you than, than, than the police or the government or, or a corporation. Very true. So, I don't know. It's, it, yeah, it's kind of weird how just how much it's strange. Like technology, it, it's such a it's such a double double edged sword, really. Like all these things have really amazing benefits, but they also like you always get somebody that's able to get more and more control over you over time too. 
Oh yeah, everybody always wants to have some, some, some measure of a control, and, and control in, in itself isn't a dirty word, you know, as long as it's not something that's total control. Because if you think about it, you know, you're working at, at a place that has some control over you because it needs to do that in order to be able to get the labor it wants out of you, and you of course have some control on it because of certain rights you have, and that's how you get your your income. There's no different than a marriage. Our marriage really is a controlled experiment of two people that now have to live together and work together, whether sometimes they like it or not, on any given day. And and that's a, a measure of control. So there's all kinds of things that we walk into that we already know are going to have a measure of control. So control itself isn't bad. It, it only becomes bad when it, it's giving you misinformation or making you do things that you normally wouldn't do then that's the kind of control that we're looking to avoid. I think it's also the extent of the control, too. I mean, like, with a marriage, you can, like, you can get out of that. Right. If you really needed to. But you really, like, it's harder to do it whenever it's being, like, from an authority figure, because they will have, you know, they could really limit your options legally. Like, they could make you do something, or, I mean, that's what makes it scary to me so we all live under some form of uh, of control it's just a question of you know what we feel is tolerable and, and what's not plus you got to realize also too that sometimes people fall into situations where their whole lives are being controlled on something they walked into voluntarily you know like when you go into a cult and give up all this and that and next you know you're you know what I mean? You're, you're walking barefoot and, and selling flowers or somebody in a damn uh, you know airport and giving the money back to some pimp guy. You know it, that's that's a, a serious form of control, like a cold brainwashing type of thing. Or you could have somebody in just in a bad relationship and you know they walked into something now that they're you know being controlled by. So oftentimes control is not necessarily from somebody stepped in who forced you to do something as much as you volunteered for that. You. Some people want control of, of their lives, unfortunately, and I don't, I don't, of course, promote that. But sometimes I think they do because, you know, either they're afraid of, you know, speaking out or, or taking control of their own lives, or sometimes people just want somebody else to have the control because they don't want to have the responsibility of making the decisions. Have you ever actually, like, had to meet, like, a lot of cult, like, people? In, have you ever met anyone, like, really involved with the cult? Oh, yeah, yeah, a, a, a couple of... A couple of people, they're not exactly people you can talk to on any kind of rational level because they're they're trained to figure out that you already think they're weird, so they have a pre-pet answer for everything you have to say to them. So in, in the end, the person talking to you isn't talking from, from their free mind. They're talking from some script that some guy just drilled in their head for the last two, three months. So you're hearing a script answer. You're not hearing anything that's human or real. It's like talking to a you know a, a, a walking robot with flesh, it's like a damn android or something. So that's why um, some people, um, when they get out of that thing, they're forcibly removed, and then they have to literally be unbrainwashed and having to be uh, retaught, you know, to to get that junk out of their system so they can go back to being, you know, free thinking people again. But there, it, it's a scary, it's a scary, it's a scary thing. I'm sure. Actually, this is. I don't 
Like, whenever it comes like, art and stuff, do you ever use it as a tool to question yourself? Like, really poke into your own mind and, like, you'll think, oh, why do I think this way? Well, sometimes, sometimes it happens naturally when you're writing something that's more artistic than it would be like a nonfiction level, like a poem or, or you know, like a, a fiction story. That will come out. And sometimes you are exploring certain things that you normally wouldn't explore otherwise because you feel in the artistic structure that uh, you can get away with saying or feeling or, or talking about those things that normally you wouldn't be able to. And maybe get a message or, or, or something useful out, or maybe even just kind of get something released out of yourself that you couldn't normally do in in mixed company or even in a family setting. So, and, and that's and that's fine to do, but um, in the end, art is about art. It can never really be about a therapy, even though it can have a therapeutic value and be used at times as a therapy. In the end, art is just really art. Yeah, well, I do agree. It ultimately is just like, it is what it is. But, I don't know, like, I, I do always find it interesting that people can weave in, like, the technical, like, technicality of things, which is with something that's just able to actually invoke something, like, feelings in me when I look at it. Like, uh, that's one thing, like, like, I do really enjoy about a lot of visual work, is that you can just get a very... I don't know, you get an almost instantaneous reaction from it, which could be not positive or negative. Like, I do like looking at uh, bits of horror and stuff like that, too. But sometimes that's really what the best art is, is, is the art that stands on its own and doesn't appear to have a, an agenda or direction. Or, hell, even a, even a damn message. Sometimes it's just art you find that sometimes horror is just horror and sometimes if it's just for the scare sake there's nothing wrong with that it doesn't have to have the a be a big dis you know big display of uh you know uh, this is about the AIDS crisis in the 80s i mean that's important yeah okay but uh you know you don't have to go that route if you don't want to so not all all art has to have some sort of social function so that's why oh, I, it, uh, it can be but it, it doesn't have to be it has, well, it has to be done in a way that feels natural, though. Like, if it is done, like, I never care for, uh, whenever, like, they're trying to, like, fill in, like, roles, if they just do it, like, if they make characters, it just feels like they're just there for no, like, they're just there to, like, uh, because, you know, they look a certain way or whatever, or they're they're going to bring a certain, to a certain issue. Like, I, I have to feel like I care about that character because they're a character. Like, I don't know, I just find that weird how, how people will just stick things together sometimes, too, just to get a message. And and, and that's that's when you can tell that it's pieced together that way and it doesn't come out to be art. It becomes messagey, it becomes clunky, uh, sometimes just straight corny or, or just sermonizing. And that's not really art. That's just a, a bad piece of propaganda. We're hoping, although, uh, Scott, with this whole corona thing that we're dealing with right now, uh, the hoping is, is when people stop the fear, start looking at the facts, and, and doing their and doing their best to keep themselves and their family and, and their community healthy. That when this thing is over with, we're hoping that's going to improve people. I hope it's going to improve, you know, their basic hygiene about respecting germs and and, and washing up on a regular basis. And we're hoping that maybe uh, people being together more 
rather than going out there and avoiding each other. Maybe that might make a stronger family or, or maybe that'll like make people try to understand a little bit more about themselves they didn't realize before. It might make force people to, you know, come down to a, a level they needed to be at. And, and of course, uh, maybe it, it just gets more people more, more prepared for things in the future by having things on hand. You know, you shouldn't have to run the store and buy 17,000, you know, toilet bowl rolls. And you should be able to have a few on hand already, you know. Stock up before the damn disaster, not during it, you know. So we're hoping that those are the things that are becoming lessons that will take root into people. Uh, I remember, and I don't know if you recall from maybe stories from your grandmother or something, but every uh, senior citizen person I talked to, even even when I was young, all told me, that during the Great Depression, years afterwards, and I mean decades afterwards, they were still buying cans of food and stocking it in case there was a disaster and they had this water and they had this supply and they had this money rolled up some damn place in the house for emergencies. And they were still ready 20, 30 years after that because it had such an impact on their lives. So maybe something like this might do so. I hope, you know, we're not really the same people as those folks were where they were a little more conscientious, but... I'm hoping this is going to like, you know, get uh, get people to, to think about that more because, you know, uh, when it comes down to something like this, um, you know, the Netflix and the Internet and you having a cool Jaguar is not going to save you. But, you know, if you don't wash your hands, you're picking your nose and, you know, I mean, r rubbing on yourself and coughing on everybody and you're wondering why you're dying in the hospital. So uh, I'm hoping it's going to get people to, to really rethink their lives and, and maybe that might be a, a better thing for the future. Well, you, we can only hope. I don't know. I, when it comes to people, I always, I don't this might be a strange view, but I kind of view our behaviors as somewhat cyclical, really. Because it just seems like with uh, history always repeats itself. Because you'll get like, you will get like events that happen. And people might change for a while, but then things will get comfortable again and we will we'll shift again. I just find that weird, and 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 that there's always going to be a little bit of the you know zigzagging that, and I agree. But one thing that I think that is going to stay with people for a long time to come is that people I think they're going to adhere more to vaccinations than they ever did before. Because remember, this corona vaccination is is on the horizon. We'll, we'll probably see it in less than six months, and when that happens, you're going to have people not only running to get those. But they're going to probably get them every year for some time to come into the future because even when the corona passes throughout the world as an, as an epidemic or a pandemic, it's still going to be out there for, for a long time. And if you don't have that vaccination you know, and you get it, it'll be because of your own fault and just being stupid. So I think in many ways, I think people are going to probably be clinging more to vaccinations than they have in quite some time. Well, I do hope that, yeah, I, I really do hope the vaccination thing becomes uh, really large again. I mean, that that is quite concerning. There was time, uh, that whole anti-vaccination thing even started. It just, it just seems oh, it just seemed backwards to me to start with. Yeah, it, like, it, it, it is. And part of it is um, just conspiracy-related people that they just always have to find you know, something else to blame uh, because the uh, the instances of people being ill from vaccinations, I mean, literally on, on a mathematical level, 
you know, like in, in, in decimals. I mean, it's like less than like a 0.2% of, of all the people who get a vaccination have any kind of reaction to it. So it's extremely small. And the reason why it's extremely small is because of the pharmaceutical in industry putting in so much money and so much development because they couldn't afford for this thing to go wrong. Too many people had to get it, and too many people will be suing them otherwise. It's, it's really the logic that confounds conspiracy-leading people. They never seem to accept the logic that, well, why should I trust them? Well, I mean, this is why you can trust them. They're a business. If it doesn't go right and, and like 50% of the people get ill or die, they're done for. They understand that. And they're a business. They have billions in the entire industry to lose. And, and you can't build that respect up and that trust again. So that is a major reason why you can trust what they're doing, first of all. And second of all, I mean, particularly where it, where it comes to uh, many of these vaccinations like the, uh, the mumps, the measles, uh, all this crap about mercury and vaccinations, all this, that. I mean, we've had like 25 exhaustive studies here and in England and Australia. It's just simply no proof that that does anything at all. There's too many studies. Most of these studies wasn't even connected with the, with the industry itself. They were independent because they wanted to make sure. So between all of that logic and between all the studies, it's obvious that not only do these things work, but they're, they're, they're entirely safe. Is anything 100% safe? No. Anytime you take a drug, it's not 100% safe, even when it has a proven track record, because you're going to have some people, they're going to have some reactions now and then. That's, that's the chance we take. But vaccinations, I can tell you right now, you know, are responsible for a greater lifespan for, for America. They're a, a, I mean, when I was growing up, people were dying from measles, mumps, chicken pox would kill people, rabies, smallpox. All these things are gone. They're not even in society anymore. And when they come up, they're in tiny numbers. When I was growing up, I mean, literally people would have this by the hundreds of thousands. It's unbelievable. Right now, the pneumonia shot for a person over 65 works 90% of the time. That means that you got seniors right now living 10, 20, 30 years older than they used to live just because they were taking an annual pneumonia shot. You know, the number, you know the number one thing that killed old people when I was growing up? Pneumonia. What? Pneumonia would kill them. They get pneumonia, they die. That was it. So vaccinations are a big part of society going forward. It's expanding our, 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 our life and, and, of course, allowing us to have more time with our, with our relatives and, and, and to have more, more life to, to enjoy and maybe do something for the world. We just have to hope that society is smart enough to use these things and, and to use those that are still around you know, and get the most impact for them. Because, quite frankly... You know, if you have a, a, a grandfather who lives to 95, but you spent your entire life ignoring him, what the, what the hell was the point then? So it's not just the medicine. We also have to figure out how we can become better people to, to use these things and, 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 and to become wiser from them because we learn from those that went before us. Well, I think I, I agree. History does, history really does, uh, it teaches you a lot. And I think also just really, having to go through these th times too is just important too because you have to you have to live sometimes you do have to live through things to really appreciate it well we're going to have to we're going to have to learn to be uh, more careful and, and more honest uh, with with societies going back and forth one of the reasons why this corona is has such an impact just like the other one 
the avian flu, that what they used to call it, the bird flu. You know, then we had the swine flu because that was going through the pigs and then it crossed into some people. The reason why these things can, can now spread is because, unlike 100 years ago, we're an entirely interconnected planet. People can travel from here to China without a big deal anymore. You don't have to be rich. You could do it for business. You could do it for government reasons. You could do it for personal reasons. I want to go see the Great Wall, hang out with some people, come on back. So because of that, something that 100 or 200 years ago would maybe affect and kill a, country, a bunch of people in a few villages and then die out can now spread through the entire planet because we're so connected, which means now more than ever, you know, we have to be smarter about how we live, how we eat, how we do things because if we don't, it's no longer the poor villager 17,000 miles away that's going to get hurt. You're going to hurt somebody in Manhattan too. True. All right, Scott. We're gonna we're gonna wrap this up. Art in in the uh, age of uh, Corona, we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, you know some of our own personal aspects. We want to talk a little bit about the human condition, things we hope we can learn from this crisis that that, that moves forward. That maybe in in a, in a strange way can help us move forward. They say God works in mysterious ways, and I don't believe that you know diseases come from God. But what I do think that we learn from uh, from religion is that we can often take uh, tragedies and even negative elements and try to extract something good out of them that maybe helps us become stronger and better so when the next thing comes along we're more ready for it and i'm hoping that's what's going to happen with this we also learn from art too that you don't stop writing you don't stop believing you don't stop singing you don't stop playwriting you don't stop doing anything and you certainly don't stop podcasting just because you got a crisis going on you got to be able to move forward and try to maintain some kind of normalcy, even in, when times are not normal, even when they're abnormal. It's not a question of, of denying anything or even trying to sidestep it. It's just a question of saying, I know you're out there, Corona, but I'm going to live. I'm going to survive. I'm going to be around after you're gone. And that's why you're doing that. You're doing that to make sure that, you know, you're, you're, you're facing it, you know, standing up. You're not facing it on your knees. Or you're not facing it. In a bed, you're not facing it over a toilet bowl. You're trying to do uh, more than what other other folks think you can do, and that's one of the uh, I think the greatest things about humanity is that as many faults as we have, we have a strange way of rebounding. Mainly because uh, I think oftentimes these crises sort of remind us about um, how fragile we can be, maybe now how interconnected we are, and and how we have to realize that. Uh, whether we like each other or not, or whether we call each other names all day long, we're all on the same team. And I guarantee you, uh, Corona doesn't give a crap if you're, if you're yellow, black, red, or orange. It's coming for you. So we have to all be on the same side. Scott, thank you very much for, for filling in. You're certainly a perfect example of you know, someone coming to the rescue when we needed it. Um, sorry about uh, John Patrick Robbins and his technical difficulties. We'll certainly see him next time when he gets all that resolved. But we wanted to move forward on this. I wanted to get this show out there because not only is it such an important uh, topic to have, but, you know, I didn't want to have this show a couple months later. I wanted to have it while things were still going on because that's really uh, when we needed the most uh, encouragement and maybe the most uh, education and instruction or even even some inspiration. You got some uh, last words there, Scott? Um. You know, not that I can really uh, say it. I mean, uh, but it has been good to be on the show. Um, and, yeah, uh, you know, uh, thanks for uh, 
Thanks for having me on. Hopefully John will uh, be able to get back to you next time. It's been good talking, Mark. Yeah, I, I appreciate it. Folks, uh, stay out there. You know, uh, keep keep the, keep the faith. Uh, don't uh, don't despair in, in, in any of this. Uh, like all pandemics throughout history, uh, they they have a, a shelf life, and then afterwards, that's really when the when the, when the battle begins. Can we learn from it? Can we grow from it? Can we kind of get stronger so this way the next one comes, we're more ready. Hopefully, that's going to be the case over here. I know the government's trying to arrange themselves in such a way that it can be better prepared in the future, and we have to do the same thing. So let's try to get something positive from, from something that, that, that appears to be so damn negative. All right, folks, until next time, this is Mark Anthony Rossi, Strength to be Human, Guest House Edition, both with John Patrick Robbins and Scott Simmons. You take care, and good night. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by purchasing an ebook at Soma Publishing, www.somapublishing.com.